In Drink the Wild Air, we're going to be talking to people who, in different ways, explore the limits of what might be possible. Scientists, explorers, artists and thinkers who ask questions that reframe our reality. People, in short, who are different from most of us. Never happier than when, as Lewis Carroll might have put it, dreaming up six impossible things before breakfast. Yet while they are exceptional, they also remind us of the adventure inside all of us, of the thrill of those moments when we look at the world around us and realise it is infinitely remarkable. With a fire this intense, we're talking about um, lodgepole pine, so really big trees. The, the flames were as high as the Shard in London. You can't get close enough to the smoke safely to even use my technique, where you beam the lamp through to the spectrometer. But what you could do in that setting um, is to use the sun. When unprecedented wildfires broke out in Britain last year, Dr Thomas Smith was among the experts called for comment. Thomas Smith is a pioneer in the rapidly expanding study of a phenomenon that's raging with ever-growing intensity across the globe. Last year, the European Space Agency reported record-breaking emissions from wildfires across Europe, while elsewhere around the globe, thousands of people were displaced in ecosystems ravaged by infernos. I'm Rachel Halliburton, and I went to talk to Dr Smith at his office at the London School of Economics, where he teaches. There he told me about everything from new technologies for understanding fire to a somewhat surprising episode with Australian ants. I want to start by talking about what NASA describes as the fire-breathing dragon of clouds, which technically has the less catchy name of the pyrocumulonimbus. It's something that's become increasingly common in recent years, not least in America and Canada. To put it simply, it's the product of a wildfire that's large enough to generate its own weather system in the form of strong winds and dry thunderstorms. This is particularly bad news because lightning strikes from those storms can then start their own fires. When did we first become aware of this phenomenon? I think our ancestors will have been aware of these clouds. Um, humans have evolved with fire. Um, humans have been using fire for hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of years in some places. And we know that intense fires can generate pyrocumulus clouds. And the most intense fires, and especially when the atmospheric conditions are right, will generate these pyrocumulonimbus clouds. Now, what we're concerned about is that these clouds are becoming more frequent because the intensity of fires in some places is becoming uh, greater. And that, of course, is linked to a multitude of factors, one of which is climate change. For places that are getting hotter and drier, that drives more extreme, more intense fire behaviour. And, of course, there's also something to do with the way that we manage the uh, landscape, the fuels or the vegetation uh, on the ground. And when you have uh, more fuel, again, often related to climate change because it's warmer and wetter and the dry, drying seasons are longer, um, we end up with these more intense fires. And the greater the intensity of the fire, the more energy that pumps into the atmosphere. And when you have energy pumping into the atmosphere, you have um, convection, just like you would have in a pot, a boiling water in a pan. Um, and that drives the, the air upwards. And when you have moist air driven upwards, the, the water condenses, forms a cloud. And with the most intense convection, you end up with these pyrocumulonimbus clouds. I've asked you about this because it's such a strong example of the things that many of us really don't understand about fire. Uh, most of us think we have some kind of intuitive understanding, yet the more scientists study it, whether they're looking at flame shapes, the way it spreads, or the emissions created, 
they're discovering more and more results that defy expectations. Um, your career as a wildfire scientist has given you the opportunity to observe raging infernos in a wide range of situations all over the world. I suspect there's never a dull day in what you do, but what has most surprised you and what you've learned? One of the most surprising things, I guess, that I've come to appreciate is that there has been a wealth of knowledge about fire, um, but a lot of that knowledge has been lost. Uh, we, we evolved in the outdoors using fire, and there was a great deal of knowledge about how fire behaves, about how it can be used to manage the landscape, uh, about how it can be used to stop larger, more destructive fires. And since we've become much more of an urban society globally, you know, more than 50% of the world's population now live in cities, uh, a lot of that knowledge that would have been passed down verbally from parent to offspring um, has been lost. And so that's one of the things that I've, I guess I've discovered in the, over the 10 plus years that I've been working with wildfires, because you go to places where that older knowledge is still there. Um, and that knowledge is confirming what the scientists are now discovering, that traditional knowledge, um, which has been around for tens of thousands of years, is something that we're now seeing as really important. I want to talk to you about what some people describe as the godfather of wildfire research, the Masula Fire Sciences Laboratory. This is the organisation that was set up in 1960 in Montana in the Rocky Mountains to improve the scientific understanding of wildland fire. Rather wonderfully, there are quite a few films, I think, on YouTube now interviewing people from there who quite literally set things on fire to make a living. Can you talk to us about this organisation and how it's impacted on the study of wildfire in Britain? Missoula has an interesting history. It came about as a result of mostly disasters, uh, firefighter disasters in the US, where uh, the behaviour of the fire couldn't have been predicted using the established kind of rules of thumb um, amongst the firefighting community in the early 20th century. And so Missoula was set up to... to take a more scientific approach to understanding how fire behaves. And what I mean by fire behaviour, that's a, quite a specific term in fire science. It's about the speed of the fire, the rate of spread, as we call it, and the intensity, um, how, how much energy it gives off. Uh, that's, that's what uh, describes the fire behaviour. And so uh, that was Missoula's original kind of goal, was to try and understand um, how factors like the weather, uh, wind, the the, uh, the the humidity, the moisture in the fuel, how things like that affect the fire behaviour. And um, that has had a really important impact all over the world because uh, fire danger rating systems, um, which uh, the Australians use, the Canadians use, um, the Americans use, the Spanish, many Mediterranean countries, are all kind of based or, or have kind of evolved or inherited some of the science that was done in, in those early days in the Missoula Fire Lab in the, in the 1960s. And these fire danger rating systems help us to predict how a fire might behave given the weather forecast and given the antecedent conditions, the conditions from weeks or months. Tackling wildfires demands um, a wide range of uh, disciplines. Beyond the immediate firefighting, there are, of course, medical implications, the dramatic impact of large fires on air quality and atmosphere, the socioeconomic fallout, agricultural losses and, indeed, political consequences. Can you explain to our listeners what discipline you specialise in and how precisely you found yourself working in this important area? The main focus of my research is on greenhouse gas emissions from fires 
it may seem obvious, combustion produces carbon dioxide. All of the, the stuff in the fuels, the sugars, the starches, they crack and, um, and they combine with oxygen in the air to form CO2, which of course is a greenhouse gas. I'm also interested in many other gases that are emitted during a fire. Methane is one of them, uh, another really important greenhouse gas, but also some of the ingredients of smog or poor air quality like ammonia, hydrogen cyanide, uh, NO2, nitrous, uh, nitrogen dioxide as well. So emissions is really um, what has driven me into, into fire science. It's also uh, one of the specialisms of Missoula as well. You know, they look at fire behaviour, but they've increasingly done a lot of work on emissions as well. They burn stuff in the lab. Um, the smoke goes into a chimney and they have lots of instruments in that chimney to measure the, the contents of the smoke. I never set out as a teenager thinking I want to do wildfire science, not even at the start of my PhD did I know I was going to end up looking at wildfires. Uh, it comes around uh, from learning the skills to use a piece of equipment. Uh, that's, that's what it is. It's as simple as that. For my master's dissertation, I used this spectrometer to look at urban surfaces. It, it, it looks at the infrared part of the electromagnetic spectrum. What's really cool about this spectrometer is it can be used to measure gases as well in the open atmosphere. And um, no one had, or, or not many people, had thought to do that with this type of spectrometer for fires. It had been used on volcanoes. Uh, but not really for wildfires. And that was the opening for me to begin doing research in wildfires because measuring smoke from real fires in the real world on a landscape is really difficult. Um, that's why Missoula do it in a lab. It's controlled. They just bring the fuel in, set fire to it, goes up the chimney. All their instruments are there. They don't have to move them about. Conventionally, if you want to do uh, measurements of emissions at, at real fires on a landscape scale, you either need a plane with lots of very expensive equipment on it. Uh, the other way is to suck the smoke into a bag and then take it to a laboratory and measure it there. But the problem with that is how do you know you're getting a representative sample? When you're sucking smoke, it, it, you have to be close to it for a start and you can't exactly get close to the most intense parts of, of a fire. So uh, that was really problematic. And what was really cool about the technique that we're using is that you, you use an infrared lamp and you beam that light through the smoke downwind of a fire and you sense that light using the spectrometer. And that means you get this this really representative sample of the smoke because you can use a 100-metre path and all of the smoke that's coming through in that 100 metres, we can measure what's in it. Your um, use of that technique led you quite early on to be invited out to Canada, didn't it? Can you talk to us about that trip? Yeah, that was my first experience of a wildfire. Um, it was the first time I'd been to North America, first time I'd travelled um, intercontinentally. It was a really big experience for me personally. Um, and I'll never forget the drive from Edmonton. We landed in Edmonton, Alberta, and we're driving into Banff National Park, the mountains, the turquoise lakes from the, the glacial melt. And we turned a corner and there was this huge plume and there was a pyrocumulus, you know, a, a pyrocumulus cloud. And I was like, this is absolutely incredible. It completely blew my mind. Within minutes of arriving close to this fire, some of my team had gone off and hopped into a helicopter and flown off. I, it did feel like I'd been transported into a movie set, but I was to remain on the ground with this spectrometer to to, to measure the, the smoke column. And 
with a fire this intense, we're talking about um, lodgepole pine, so really big trees. The, the flames were as high as the Shard in London. You can't get close enough to the smoke safely to even use my technique, where you beam the lamp through to the spectrometer. But what you could do in that setting um, is to use the sun. And so I found a position uh, where the sun was, uh, the smoke was between me and the sun and uh, aim the spectrometer at the sun. Uh, and from that, you can, you can detect what's in the smoke, um, uh, mainly carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, only the major constituents, because we're looking through the whole atmosphere as well. So you, you need to figure out what's in the smoke and what's in the atmosphere. But we can do that. Inevitably, as um, a wildfire scientist, you would at certain points find yourself in quite hairy situations. Um, there was another moment earlier on in your career in Australia when you quite literally stood in the path of an oncoming fire in order to uh, take your measurements. How did that feel? This was the second time I'd experienced fire. Now I was on the other side of the world in Australia, also uh, with my same piece of equipment, this spectrometer. Uh, we'd been invited out there because this technique was was. Uh, exciting the, the scientific community when they realised they could measure the smoke in this way. And I, I guess having been to Canada, I couldn't get close to the fire there. had to be a kilometre away. The fires in the Northern Territory of Australia are much lower intensity. And the traditional fires that have been set there for tens of thousands of years by the, the traditional owners of, of the land are low intensity fires that burn in the early dry season. And uh, what we were doing out there was to look at the difference between early dry season fires and the later dry season fires, which had begun to take over in the Northern Territory because of the abandonment of the land, mainly due to the forced migration of the people to cities in the early colonial times, uh, in the early 20th century in Northern Australia. I was kind of helping with that to, to measure the emissions uh, during the early and late dry season. And I guess I was very excited that I could get close to a fire and... Uh, I guess it brings out the pyromaniac in you. But I um, I stood there and I was posing for a photograph. This was going to be like my new Facebook profile or MySpace or whatever whatever it was back then. And um, the fire was approaching. I, it, it's safe. You can walk away from it. It's not traveling very fast. Um, some of these fires, you can kind of hop over them. It, it, it's not particularly intense. But um, there were lots of other things in the environment scrambling away from that fire including a huge number of ants <laughs> ants have obviously got an instinct and they have evolved to to climb trees uh, when these fires arrive because again tr traditionally these fires wouldn't kill the trees and they wouldn't burn very high up the trees so if you can get up into a tree you're going to be safe and of course these ants thought i was a tree and within a few seconds of posing for this photograph i had probably a two dozen ants crawling up my legs and um these are these are not like little British ants. These are huge, and they have a really really nasty nip on them as well. I very quickly remove my clothing in front of all of the scientists and all of the traditional owners, and uh, that was that provided quite an amusing moment for uh, everyone involved. I bet. <laughs> One of the aims was to look at the difference in the emissions from early dry season fires and late dry season fires. Um, particularly interested in, in driving uh, more early dry season fires because this is when traditionally uh, Aboriginal people will have burnt the land and these fires burn with, with a lower intensity. They don't kill the trees. It burns through the grasses and scorches the barks of the eucalypt and the, 
the barks have evolved, you know, that flaky bark to be resistant to these small fires. Uh, but late dry season fires have begun to take over in this region, um, mainly because of the uh, abandonment of those traditional burning practices. And we're trying to bring those practices back, the Australian government are trying to bring those practices back to avoid these devastating late dry season fires. So we were measuring the emissions in the early dry season and the late dry season. And uh, one of the fires, the only place to, to safely, or I thought it was going to be safe, to, to measure the smoke was to be in the middle of the fire. So there was this hill, and they were going to set fire at the bottom of the hill. So it was going to come with the wind and the slope, which means very intense fire behaviour. And the wind, of course, is going to blow the smoke in my direction, which is actually what I want. Uh, unfortunately, I do have to situate myself downwind of fires because I want to capture the smoke. Um, and the only safe place to do this was a rocky outcrop in the middle of the fire. So the fire was going to burn up the hill, then burn around us, and then continue going uh, as it went past. That was an incredible experience. I mean, you're surrounded by fire. And, and even the rocky outcrop was burning. There's still little bits of grass um, and, and, and dead leaves and things like that. So it was like being in the, in the middle of an inferno. For many years, even though we've known that wildfires happen in Britain, they seemed relatively undramatic compared to what we know happens in California and Australia. But in 2022, when we saw temperatures go above 40 degrees centigrade for the first time, they were accompanied by unprecedented outbreaks. One statistic said that in London alone, July the 19th was the fire brigade's busiest day since World War II, with 2,670 call-outs. You yourself have already talked about this a bit, but you are now working on a fire danger rating system for the UK. Uh, can you explain how this came about and how it's going to work? Those fires were truly devastating. They shocked uh, the wildfire science community in the UK. I'm part of a WhatsApp group and I don't think any of us could really believe what we were seeing. It, we shouldn't have been surprised though. Um, it had been predicted. I think many of us didn't think it we would see something like this until the 2030s or later. Um, some of us are the authors on a UK government uh, climate change risk assessment for wildfires and, and it's in there. This type of fire behaviour is in there and we we predicted that we would need to plan for those types of fires. We would need to separate the fuels in the rural environment from, from the urban boundaries uh, and make sure there's no continuity, make sure people are clearing out the, the, the litter from their, from their uh, guttering, uh, watching the helicopter footage, uh, seeing people's houses burn down, which has not happened in the UK before. That's simply never happened in, in a wildfire situation. Uh, I felt I felt like we all um, were seeing a, a step change. Our landscapes are becoming more flammable. That's a combination, clearly, of climate change. That, 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 um, those unprecedented temperatures, they smash the records. Higher temperatures come lower humidities, and both are really important for driving more extreme and intense uh, fire behaviour. But what we also have in the UK is landscape management that is essentially not fit for an environment where wildfire is going to begin to play a really important role. So one of the issues that we have in the UK um, is that we don't have one of these wildfire danger rating systems. We can't really link how the weather is going to drive fire behaviour. Now, there are many other countries that have 
decent fire danger rating systems, but we can't use their systems in the UK because we have a very different environment, mainly in terms of the fuels that burn or the vegetation that burns on the ground. Most of uh, the fires in the UK burn in heathlands, and so the fuel is heather or gorse uh, and other shrubs. And none of these American, Canadian or Australian uh, systems have that fuel model. Um, we do have a fire weather index in the UK, so we can predict when uh, a fire might start or might spread, but we can't predict what the behaviour of that fire is going to be. And that's absolutely crucial if we're going to have an understanding of the kind of resources we're going to need to fight those fires. Now, we have fantastic land cover maps of the UK, but land cover does not equate to fuel. So if we think about Heathland, well, a fire is going to behave very different between a heather fire and a gorse fire. We think about grassland. It depends on the species of the grass. It depends on when, whether it's managed or not. It depends on a um, huge range of factors. The heather itself, is it overgrown? Is it two metres tall? Has it just been clipped? Uh, has it burned recently? All of these things are going to be really important for predicting how a fire is going to behave on UK landscapes. Last year, according to the European Space Agency, Europe's summer wildfire emissions were the highest in 15 years. This is alarming enough, but that was in the context that 2022 was predominantly a La Nina year. And this year we're expecting an El Nino cycle to kick in. Can you explain why this is so significant? If we look at the past 100 years, the, the hottest years on records globally have been during super El Ninos or, or El Nino years. Um, and to have the one of the warmest years on record last year during a La Nina is surprising and worrying because we know that an El Nino is coming now. It's, it's predicted to kick in later on in, in 2023 and, and probably last through uh, 2024 as well. This is a particular concern, um, well, for, for the whole planet, really, because we're all affected by, by El Nino. It's a phenomenon in the Pacific, but the Pacific is half of our planet, um, and that really drives um, the weather systems um, across, across the whole planet, but the Pacific in particular. Um, and what we tend to see uh, on the eastern coast of Asia and the eastern coast of Australia is, is much drier conditions during El Nino. The flip side, of course, is that it tends to get much wetter on the western coasts of the Americas, particularly uh, South America and, and, and Central America as well. But with the dry weather in Southeast Asia and in, in northeastern Australia, uh, usually comes a lot of fire activity. So historically, the the most intense fire years in Indonesia, for example, um, 1997-98, where 15 to 40% of the global carbon emissions from all human activity came from a few fires on the islands of Sumatra and Borneo. Um, 2015 was a really big year as well. Uh, the fires raging for two to three months in this region, shrouding huge conurbations like Kuala Lumpur and Singapore in smoke. And um, for the last few years, there have been far fewer fires because of the wetter conditions. But with this El Nino prediction, I expect that we will see the return of haze in Southeast Asia, especially given the wet conditions have driven a, quite a lot of growth um, on the ground. I've, I've been to some of my field sites in Malaysia. There's a huge amount of new growth of shrubby vegetation, 
grasses, particularly in areas that have been deforested or abandoned. Um, and that, that will be the fuel for the next fires when they happen. There's all sorts of interesting technology being developed around wildfire. On your website, for instance, you have a fascinating image of a wildflower that took place on the Chinese-Russian border in May 2020. If you saw it from a satellite, from a human eye perspective, it looked like a black patch of land with smoke. But you've been using false colour imagery that can pick up infrared rays of light that are invisible to the human eye, yet give a much more comprehensive account of the levels of heat and destruction. Can you talk about the technologies that you are finding most helpful right now? Yeah, this became a bit of a hobby during the lockdown as well because I couldn't travel into the field. So I became increasingly interested in using satellites for looking at, at wildfires. It's something that I'd done a long time in the past, but it was really nice to return to those skills and, and particularly because the technology had evolved quite a bit since I'd last been uh, using uh, satellite remote sensing imagery. And yeah, the, on, on board satellites, you have sensors that, are similar to the sensors that we have in our eyes that can detect red, green and blue light. And you can use those to construct the kind of imagery that you see on Google Maps, uh, you know, what we call true colour composites that look like what they would look like if you looked at them with the human eye. But on board satellites, um, there are multiple sensors beyond the red, green and blue, both in the ultraviolet directions, uh, which are important for looking at gases in the atmosphere like ozone, but many sensors in the infrared bands, both what we call the near infrared, which is the part of the infrared spectrum that's closest to red, and only very hot things give off near infrared. So fires, active fires, so the flames of the fires give off near infrared, but also further, further into the red, what we call the mid wave or the far infrared as well. You and I are giving off far infrared right now. If I had infrared vision, I'd see you glowing. <laughs> Um, and uh, satellites have that uh, ability as well. And uh, what's fascinating is you can use those infrared bands for multiple things when it comes to fires. You can detect the heat signature of the flames themselves, and at that particular wavelength, the, the, um, the energy passes through clouds quite easily, and so you can almost see through the clouds with, with those wavelengths um, to see the fires underneath uh, in some cases. You can see the live vegetation versus the dead vegetation very clearly because vegetation also has a very strong signature in this near-infrared part of the spectrum. It's, it's very bright when it's alive and very dark when it's dead. So we can use that to map where the fires have been and we can also look at where the active fire is. It's, of course, not just the fire itself, but the way it scars and impacts on the landscape that is changing our world. Some of your most recent research has been to look at the after-effects of fire on peatlands and how it changes the microbes living there. What does that mean in the broader scheme of things? Yes, yeah, so I, tropical peatland fires are, are fascinating. Um, they burn laterally, but they also burn down. You know, like a smouldering cigarette, it'll burn through the soil so long as it's dry. And so the, the length of time that a peat fire burns for depends mostly on the water table and how low the water table is. If, if the land has been drained, then it will burn for weeks or months, uh, sometimes more than a metre uh, into the soil. And that's a huge amount of carbon uh, that's released into the atmosphere. And originally, that was the focus of my research in this region, was to look at what is going up in smoke in terms of the gases and the particulates which cause these terrible air pollution episodes uh, in the region. 
But more recently, I've become interested in what happens after the fire. Because what's also interesting about peat is it's a microbiome. It's it's home to many thousands of different species of, uh, of bacteria that live near the surface, but also deeper down in the soil column. And what's fascinating is, is the deeper you go into the peat, especially when it's wet deep down, you've got a lot of microbes that are um, anaerobic, so they, they don't require oxygen, and they produce methane. And you would think that's an issue, because uh, if the methane bubbles out into the atmosphere, it's a very strong greenhouse gas. But it's like a mini ecosystem, because the methane bubbles up, and near the surface, where it's a bit drier, you've got the aerobic um, bacteria, and they can consume uh, the methane, and that produces carbon dioxide. So that releases CO2 into the atmosphere, which is not as bad as releasing methane into the atmosphere. But what happens when a fire occurs on the peat is it wipes out all of the surface. I mean, literally burns through it, or it scorches it and will will sterilize the, the top layer of the, of the peat soil. So what we're interested in looking at is what does that do to the microbial communities and how does that correspond to changes in the greenhouse gas emissions from these systems. Our hypothesis, uh, which we're beginning to see in the results of our research, which haven't been published yet, is that the methane producers continue producing because they're not affected by the fire. They're deep down where it's still moist. But the methane consumers um, are wiped out. And what this means is the methane is allowed to freely escape into the atmosphere following a fire. We talked, for obvious reasons, predominantly about the negative aspects of fire. Yet you've also mentioned there are also positive aspects of how it affects our landscapes. Can you talk a little bit about those aspects? Yes. In many places, it's very easy to assume when you arrive and you look at a landscape that it's natural. And I'm doing natural in inverted commas there. Um... But in fact, many places, many ecosystems that we consider to be natural have been heavily modified by human activity for thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. And in many cases, that's involved the use of fire. A really good example of this is is northern Australia, where fire has been used for tens of thousands of years. Colonialists arrived in the late 19th, early 20th century to, to to the Northern Territory and saw this, you know, this beautiful grassy savanna landscape uh, eucalypt trees separated by kind of tussock grasses um, and said oh yeah that's natural and we need to preserve that you know this old mentality of conservation and and that involved removing all the people from the landscape um, the forced migration of, of, of indigenous people in northern territory to cities and urban centers and what came with that was a huge shift in the ecosystem because people didn't realize the importance of those traditional practices on the landscape, those regular fires that were used traditionally to clear the land and made it easier for hunting, it made it easier to roam around, had become part of the ecosystem. They they were the grassy savanna ecosystem or woody savanna ecosystem in northern Australia. And without those fires, you, you began to see the grasses grow and then shrubs starting to appear. And then when a, di- a fire did happen caused by a natural ignition or an accidental ignition uh, the fire was so intense that it kills the eucalyptus trees and then you see a shift in the ecosystem it's no longer a eucalypt woodland it becomes a grassland or a shrubland or in the worst cases it could become desert so you removed a really important part of the landscape the people 
And so there's been a lot of effort in Northern Australia, but other parts of the planet as well, California um, and other parts of Australia as well, to try and reintroduce these traditional practices of regular burning uh, to the land to maintain this kind of semi-natural ecosystem. We've reached the point in Drink the Wild Air when I ask you what culturally informs your work. Can you tell me the book, the film and the music that have most inspired you? This was a tricky one. Um, for the book, and it relates to the, the Missoula Fire Lab, uh, is a bit by Norman McLean called Young Men and Fire. It's about a wildfire disaster that killed um, a number of uh, smoke jumpers. So these were firefighters that jumped out of planes with parachutes, which still exists in the US. Incredible, uh, incredible um, career. Um, and uh, the disaster was called the Man Gulch Fire. And um, that laid the path for a more scientific approach to understanding fire. And it's uh, it's a fantastically well-written uh, book about about what happened, about the complexities of the fire, about how some of the firefighters escaped by setting their own fires uh, and then lying down in the black, as it's called, uh, the scorched land to, to save themselves. Um, and then begins to explain how the Missoula Fire Lab was set up and some of the key people that were involved in that, including Rothermel, who wrote a lot of the early equations that describes how a fire spreads. So that's Young Men and Fire by Norman MacLean. The film um, not necessarily inspired my work, but maybe inspired my passion and my geekiness is, is Solaris by Tarkovsky. 1972 and actually it's, it's on at the BFI uh, quite soon so I'm hoping to go and see that in a cinema because I've never seen it in a cinema before and I guess just the the visuals of that the vibes um, uh, when I when I look at the satellite imagery sometimes it makes your hair stand up uh, and that it feels like it feels like you're being transported into the middle of Siberia and, and you're alone and um Sometimes it really freaks me out and I have to turn the monitor off and go make myself a cup of tea. Um, as for the song, Billy Joel, We Didn't Start the Fire. <laughs> it links to my research and that was another hobby in 2020. I rewrote all the lyrics about the pandemic, including some lines on wildfire. Um, but yeah, that's a, it's a classic. And in your work now, uh, finally we're allowed to travel again. What, what is your key priority for this year going forward? I was fortunate enough to get back out to uh, my field sites in Malaysia last year uh, in, in August. And uh, that was in collaboration with my, my, uh, the, the local academics who work at three different universities uh, around Kuala Lumpur and then another collaborator in Liverpool and uh, we went out there to look at smoke from fires but there were no fires because of this La Nina it's been unusually wet so we adapted as good scientists always do and uh, began to measure uh, measure the emissions from the drainage canals because these drainage canals were flowing with black water full of carbon uh, and because it's bubbling, all of that carbon can be released into the atmosphere. So we might have something really interesting from that trip. But this summer, we'll be going back out there again. And uh, as we've already mentioned, it's we're expecting it to be drier. And there's been a lot of overgrowth, a lot of 
a lot of vegetation growth in the wet years over the last few years and uh, we expect there'll, there'll be more smoke to measure, unfortunately. Dr Thomas Smith, thank you very much. Thanks. <laughs>